My first question that I wanted to start with is how did you become a game developer? Can you sort of walk us through that journey yeah, of like I can, sure. games or this come later in life? Well, I was I was definitely into games as a kid. Yeah, I you know I was I'm old enough. I'm afraid that I was one of these people who who got like a huge uh, home computer when they were sort of 10, 11 years old and played very basic games on them. So yeah, yeah, we you know we we could hack into them and program them, and we had the manuals, but there was no internet or anything like that. So I did enjoy games as a child, and I did do a certain amount of coding and stuff like that. Um, then, you know, fast forward to adult life, I was actually a science writer for many years. Um, so I was, I was just literally, I was, I was quite au fait with technical stuff and using computers and things like that. But I was, I was writing about science and business and stuff like that. Um, how did you get into that? How did I get into that? I, I did a chemistry degree. I blew up everything I touched in the lab. <laughs> um, that my professors were kind of worried about unleashing me into the wider world, I think. But luckily, towards the end of my degree, um, I had the chance, the opportunity to give a presentation about an area of science I was interested in. And they were like, ah, this is what she can do. She can present, she can write, she can interview people, she can do that kind of stuff. Great, we'll, we'll send her off and try and get her to write about science instead of, you know, causing a hazard in the laboratory. So that's how I got into that. <laughs> yeah. So and how did it translate from, uh, from writing science to, to programming and writing for games? Yeah, I mean, I have to say it is a little bit of a, um, a, a classic, oh, my husband helped me out story. So maybe not the most empowering for many people. <laughs> but the, what, what was happening basically was um, I was working as a, as a science writer, um, sometimes working full time for various people, sometimes as a freelancer. Um, alongside of that, since 2004, my husband, Jake Burkett, was um, basically started up his own his own games company, Grey Alien Games. And I was just sort of a silent partner in the business. So we would chat about businessy kind of stuff and he would keep me up to date with what he was doing. But I was focused on my my science writing career. Um, as a result of that, I got to know various people in the games industry and I had done little bits and pieces for people like, you know, kind of testing other people's games for them and things like that. Um, and had been to various offices and, and met people in the industry, but I hadn't uh, got, gotten involved myself. But then um, around 2016, 2017, I was having a chat with Jake about games in general. And I, I literally just came up with an idea for a game. And um, people in game studios are very used to people who know nothing about games coming up to them and saying, I've got a great idea for a game. And they, they just sort of think, oh, here we go. You know, right. um, and often it's not a sensible idea. But fortunately, in my case, when I suggested this game, which was a historical game to Jake, he said, you know what? that could work so um that's how I got into games basically I had to create a job I had to create a position for myself because the company at that time just supported Jake and and you know paying out for contractors like artists and musicians and people like that so I, I went to Creative England um which is a funding body in the UK and we pitched our game idea which was Regency Solitaire and I created a part-time position for myself funded through that to get myself started I was a complete newbie. I went from being quite an expert in um, in being a writer about science and industry, which I knew a lot about, to being, you know, kind of the, the junior who didn't really know much about making games. But I learned as I went along and carried on with a bit with my science writing career until I was confident. And uh, yeah, after a couple of years, I was able to switch switch over to being doing game design full time. So I've been very fortunate, but I did, you know, I had a, a family member who helped me helped me get on board, I have to say. <laughs> Hey, it helps. It helps you get your foot through the door. What inspired yeah. you to 
think of Regency Solitaire because you you mentioned that it's yeah. historical and what sort of That's what right. was the inspiration for that? Well, when I was a kid, I used to read a lot and um, very often I would just go through my parents' bookshelves or whatever was in the library, just read whatever. And I ended up reading a lot of Regency romances uh, by an author called Georgette Heyer. I also read, you know, the normal sort of Jane Austen and things like that. But Georgette Heyer um, kind of stuck with me as having a particular type of story and a great deal of historical research um, in her stories. And when I obviously Jane Austen was contemporary, whereas um, whereas Georgette Heyer was writing in the 70s, mostly 60s and 70s when she wrote her work. So I looked a little bit more into Georgette Heyer as, a, as you know, much later, many years later. And I found out that, yeah, she did actually have kind of a team of researchers when she got popular who would you know, really check all the facts. She had a great deal of Regency era language. There was a lot of detail about the clothes people were wearing. There were little, I mean, it wasn't really political, but there were little smatterings of politics or current historical events scattered through that, that were spot on, you know. Um, and I really liked that. I really liked that world. And one of the aspects of that world was that uh, in Georgette Heyer's um, high society Regency world, you could win or lose a fortune, uh, or maybe even your hand in marriage by gambling something on a hand of cards. Um, and that's what kind of feeds in to my work with Jake and that he had made um, a best-selling card game called Fairway Solitaire, which was um, through Big Fish Games, who he later went on to work for um, full-time in Vancouver in Canada. Um, so I, you know, I knew a little bit about card games and that was the idea that I brought to him. I sort of said, hey, how, you know, let's, how about making a game aimed at the casual market? So we were thinking about uh, maybe women over 30 as the primary audience, not necessarily younger guys or whatever. Um, the idea of this sort of romantic Regency storyline, uh, the idea that you would be playing cards in the game because, you know, contemporary of that time, you would, there was this idea that gambling was really popular and playing card games was also just a really popular pastime. And he, that was why he said, yeah, I, I see where you're getting at here. This, this does all come together as a coherent um, kind of idea for a game and let's, let's work it out and see if we can make it. So, make it started, fly. so it started as an idea as a story and then you combine it with your, your husband's because he, he'd made a solitaire game before I actually saw his GDC he, speech. That's right. Yeah. He had made solitaire games previous or a solitaire game previously that had done very well so he understood how to make a good solitaire game yeah that's right right do you know what the inspiration was the gameplay mechanics in regency solitaire and also shadow hand are so interesting and unique and it's not just a straight solitaire game right like there's all yeah. sorts of like abilities and mechanics like you have to you know you can burn up cards you can unbundle cards you have to mm. find a key to unlock certain cards was that was that your idea was that jake's idea um, I th well, I think we knew from playing a lot of other our own, you know, our own games and other casual card games that uh, casual players did very much expect those sort of fun power ups and rewards. The gameplay had to be very rewarding. There was also this um, very sort of at the time well worn structure where you had to make the first hour or so of gameplay uh, free. So many people would have been playing this on on um, platforms like uh, iWin. Uh, real arcades, big fish games, places like that, where you, where the, the, the sort of way it works is that, that members get to play for an hour and then they decide whether or not they want to pick up the game after that. So, um, yeah, there's there's um, there's a lot of very careful, uh, carefully orchestrated timing of making sure that the story moves along really quickly in the first few chapters. You're introduced to a ton of fun stuff really quickly. Um, you get to try out lots of things. 
there's some really cool power-ups do something that that is you know really well tied in with the theme and the storyline really early on so people go oh yeah I can see there's a lot to this so so yeah that's very much a case of I did have story ideas in mind and I had character ideas and things like that but I very much had to uh, learn when I first set it out how to how to bend those to fit to suit this this particular game structure where where a great deal of things have to happen and, and unroll as it were in the first hour of gameplay yeah, I really like the the design of Regency Solitaire and Shadow Hand, and I was wondering about the the sort of research that you had to do to get it historically accurate. Was that a help? Yeah. Was that a hindrance? Was it like, oh, we have a historical background, we can, you know, hang everything on this historical frame, and it's easier? Or did you find it a hindrance because, oh gosh, I have to try to make it look somewhat realistic at least? Yeah. No. Um. Actually, that it was really helpful. So I started out by literally doing I'm not an historian um, I have some idea but I'm uh, I was never studied history formally so I literally went to museums um, which had displays of, of Regency artifacts I took photographs of them or, or book, books I mean I've got this was a book of my mother's who was a historian she's um, you know about costume through the ages so that had some really good ideas about the sort of clothes people used to wear um, yeah I've got a couple you know a couple of other hefty tomes oh. about that kind of stuff so I did I did, did the research and then what you find, perhaps when we look back on any era, we know it's got a certain flavor, but very much sort of the colors that were in fashion for home furnishings were also in fashion for clothes, the kind of styles, the kind of trims, the kind of um, very much in the UK anyway, very much this sort of Roman or Greek classical influence to all the little architectural details and the sort of style of clothing women were wearing was very much, you know, modeled on these kind of draped Greek statues so yeah once you kind of put the, the bits together for one part like the the backgrounds or whatever you you find that then the characters fit really well and the hairstyles are right and it all just kind of works so so yeah but I enjoyed that I enjoyed that a great deal um and I'm I'm just researching re the next Regency Solitaire game now and I'm really enjoying doing it all over again with a slightly different uh sort of set of parameters if you like yeah right. um, we also we also sort of homed in on a few kind of so talking about the design if you look at stuff like the ui i've sent you some bits of artwork there so you can refer to those um we definitely went and looked for shadow hand and for regency solitaire looked at things like jewelry or um, architectural details from the era and you can see that the buttons and things like that are literally taken from we would take a picture of some real regency jewelry and then we would adapt that into a button for the screen um, as you move around the map, there's little strings of pearls and stuff and the things that they're held in look very much like the kind of woodwork that you see around, you know, stately homes and things here in Britain that were built in that era. So, yeah, but just using all those details and putting it together just worked really well. And it was really fun as well. So, yeah, we, we were quite pleased with it. Yeah, I, I've, I think the graphics are a huge part of the experience and that they're mm. they're actually really beautiful and fun. So it's it's not just the gameplay mechanics, but it's the whole the whole visuals that sort of tie it all together. What about the the music in Regency Solitaire? It's it's very yeah. it sounds very, you know, sort of 18th century, early 19th century. And I'm, I'm wondering yeah. where you where you got the idea well, for that. We we literally hired um a chap who's from the Netherlands who we've never met in person but he has helped us with the music for several <laughs> of our games and um you know the, our artists are based in Ukraine so we did we very much have a sort of international thing where we just find the best people for for what we're doing wherever they are and we work remotely so yes our um, musician um is based in the Netherlands and we just sent him clips of music 
of the type of thing that we liked. We told him how we were going to use them. And as with most things in game design, it's kind of an iterative process. So he would come up with different little snatches of tunes and send them to us. And we'd then say, oh yeah, that one's really good for this. Or that one's got too much of this in it. Can you make it more like that? Um, you know, it's, it's quite difficult when you're making music for a game, I think, because sometimes it's got to be a musical flourish that everybody's with, Ta-da, something's happened, that's great. But a lot of the rest of the time, it's got to be kind of looped music that's quite low key, it maybe swells up a little bit to a slight crescendo, but you can't have anything too dramatic. Or, you know, it's got to be balanced so that it doesn't overpower you when you're listening to it. Because if you're right. playing solitaire for hours, you might be listening to the same, you know, if you get stuck on one level, you might be listening to the same little refrain over and over again. So it's it's, it's quite hard finding that balance actually between something that sounds true to the period or evokes the period and it's fun and is instantly recognizable as going along with your game, but isn't just like super annoying after you've heard it, you know, 30, over 40 times on a loop. So yeah, there's quite a lot of work goes into that, quite a lot of thought, but um, I think he did a great job. Um, we were very pleased with what he came up with. Can you talk a little bit about what we can expect from Regency Solitaire 2 at all? Sure, yeah. Um, well, basically the whole idea of Regency Solitaire was that you're doing up a ballroom. That's kind of the meta game. So as you go around playing cards, you gradually get these cool things that you can either wear um, or put around your ballroom so that you yourself can host a ball. And that's, you know, that's kind of what you're trying to upgrade. This is sort of the little fun thing where you're collecting stuff as you go along and you want to you want to complete it. You want to get all the nice things for your ballroom. You want to see what they do because all the things in your ballroom actually do something in the game as well, um, whether that's a passive or an active ability. So that's kind of what's going on in the background. Um, I think I can I can probably give away. We're working on Regency Solitaire 2 now, which is a direct sequel set one year later than Regency Solitaire. Um, that there was also my inspiration for this game, whereas my first game came from the kind of Regency romance, well, they won't, they gambled fortune. My um, inspiration for the second one came from a really interesting garden designer called Humphrey Repton, who was uh, working in the Regency period. And he used to make incredible gardens, kind of landscape gardens for extremely wealthy people. And he really was one of the people, along with uh, people like Capability Brown, who influenced what we expect when we go to visit a certain type of uh, very grand English garden. So what Humphrey Repton did, which I think was really beautiful and clever, was um, he created these books and he would bring them to his wealthy clients to show them. And they would have one page showing a sketch that he'd done of their garden as it was now. And it was literally like one of these, the children's kind of lift the flap peekaboo books. You know, you would lift the flap on the, on the, on the piece of paper and there would be a drawing of what their garden would look like underneath oh, so wow. sometimes it would be you know because obviously they you know that pre-digital it was like the before and after shot right, right. so he's so <laughs> yeah and he would literally do that for them and sort of say look wouldn't it be wonderful if you just had you know just just kill out that village over there that's that looks <laughs> ugly um you know and of course you need a huge waterfall here so that that church has got to go you know right. it was really big scale stuff we're talking major renovations where giant pieces of landscape are carved out huge massive trees get lugged around um bits of sort of imaginary fantasy architecture like follies or bits of um you know greek temples that aren't at all greek temples get sort of plonked around the landscape so that when you're standing by your stately home or taking a lovely promenade around your lake or whatever everywhere you turn in the landscape there's something to draw the eye that looks very beautiful and you know elevates your experience that's <laughs> so, fantastic um, yeah so so this so this guy so I, I was you know looking into what to do for the next game I had various ideas but eventually this idea of doing up a garden 
came through to me as being a really a really nice idea for a garden. So I think I can say that Bella's doing up her garden in the next game. Um, there's also some, there is a romance um, and it's going to be, ooh, there's, there's a lot of secrets and scandal and maybe some breaks and maybe some scandal sheets and gossip and things like that going on that need to be sorted out. Ah, and yeah. So that's very, that's re- very of, Regency England. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it was a bit like that the mag- there's a magazine that's still I think in print today called the Tatler which just literally is about printing gossip about wealthy and well-known people and that's oh you know my just gosh um is it challenging to make a sequel in terms of thinking up different gameplay mechanics and just a sort of different angle to bring people mm. back in yeah I mean I guess just to sort of step back a bit from the Regency Solitaire another part that we have is Shadowhand which was kind of a bit of a side quest where we had this lovely character in Regency Solitaire who was kind of a godmother. And we thought, what, what was her youth like? And, and I sort of thought back, okay, so what's like 40, 50 years back from Regency, what was going on then? And that was really the era of, of um, England being quite lawless and roads not being well-regulated and highwaymen and quite a lot of piracy and smuggling and all this kind of stuff was going on in that era. So in order to make a slightly different kind of mechanic, which we wanted to do, we wanted to try something um, a bit more sort of puzzle quest-like where you play, rather than doing the letters, you play cards to drive the gameplay, but then characters come on and battle each other as a result of what cards you've picked. This was our kind of idea. So we set, we went back and chose this character who was an older lady in um, Regency Solitaire to show her misspent youth uh, back in the sort of 1770s and yeah that that fitted really well so we, we kind of chose the historical era and the type of characters to suit um, the type of mechanics we wanted to have so she very much in her game has got outfits and disguises she's got um, there's a lot of weapons and things like that but they're weapons that again I went to museums or went looking online and found examples of uh, some really interesting and strange weapons and things that were, that yeah, were around. Yeah, I saw them. They're very yeah, detailed Yeah, some of them are quite hand. bizarre um, how they work. And we wouldn't, you know, you, unless you're a weapons aficionado, you wouldn't have thought of some of these things. <laughs> um, yeah, and again, the style of dress, costume was was vast, vastly different. Um, then everybody was still wearing the big wigs and the giant puffed out skirts and stuff. So so that was fun as well to, to explore that era of history. Um, so yeah, I think going back you know we're now going back to Bella and her story and going forward and we're doing something a little bit simpler without the battling we're going back to this idea of um playing cards you know to to gather things for your garden but there will be some new um some of it has got to be familiar because we want to keep existing fans happy but we're also introducing a few new mechanics and and new things as well to keep the gameplay fresh and make sure you know there's something a bit different obviously new locations new story new characters some new characters some old favorites yeah <laughs> that's that's really interesting how long uh how many hours do you think did you do of research you know for for these oh, games gosh. I imagine quite a bit <laughs> I can probably I, I kind of log all my hours so I can probably look that up after and and send it to you um hundreds couple of hundred hours maybe per game I would guess right um, yeah I I mean, there's a little bit of a fine line between, um, I think when I've made my first game, there was a tendency to want every single historical detail absolutely accurate and to get quite hung up on that. I think as I've gone along and made more games, I've learned, you know, obviously when it's important to have it exactly, exactly right and when to let, you know, maybe artists or our imagination and what gameplay things we want to happen slightly stretch 
you know, reality in order to make it fun. Because at the end of the day, you know, the game has to be fun for players. They have to enjoy it. We, we don't want to sort of force them into some very strict historical straitjacket to stop them, you know, enjoying the game. But um, yeah, by and large, I have found that keeping things as historically accurate as possible has actually helped because it's because history is so weird and wonderful that there's loads of, you know, like I said, these strange weapons that do odd things that that we, you know, wouldn't wouldn't have put those mechanics into the game if we hadn't known about that. And as you go into the history, all sorts of strange, you know, weird and wonderful mechanics or bits of folk history or stories or whatever suggest themselves. Um, you know, like female pirates in um, the South China Seas was something right. I didn't know anything about. And then we, I read a bit about that and thought, okay, so maybe it's okay to to include, you know, kind of a Chinese pirate. So I did, you know, that sort of thing. So it's it's not necessarily just casting about. It's like you you just start sifting through history and you find all these lovely little things. You think, yeah, that, that would work. That person could come into my game or that object could come into my game. What is your yeah. favorite kind of weird, wacky weapon in Shadowhand? Oh, gosh, well, they're all a bit strange. I mean, we've got quite a lot of agricultural tools. <laughs> right i mean uh, you know like there's these, these people yeah there are these people roaming around um on in glastonbury which is not that far from where we live actually um and there would have been a lot of um sort of willow and stuff growing there then it was quite swampy for like making baskets and things like that so there's people going around with bill hooks kind of like big hooked side likey things for cutting the wood so yeah they can get used as weapons but also funny things like a firebomb blunderbuss which is a very specific sort of gun that they used in the navy um and i think when you you fired it it, it actually sort of fired a flaming projectile wow. uh you know funny things like that um, and right. sort of boarding hooks which was something that looked a bit like a tomahawk again it was kind of a navy weapon and you used it to, to hook onto the ship you were trying to climb onto and literally kind of scrabble your way up onto the ship like you know it's piracy basically and right. then when you got when you got there you'd probably hit someone around the head with it as well so yeah, there's lots of strange things that I've learned about myself through researching the game. <laughs> I definitely do. I definitely had yeah. fun with it and Shadowhand. Yeah. I think these these games are, are a fun way to pass the time, but they're kind of, when you think about it, they're kind of educational, right? Like they sort of make you want to look up things like, you know, Regency England and is this real? So. Did this really happen? And yeah, yeah. It, it did. And I hope so. Yeah, I mean, we did sneak in a couple of interesting characters. So like in Shadowhand, there's the Chevalier de Ion, who was a real historical character who, who kept kind of, he was a sort of political intrigue spy kind of person. And I say he, I think we would probably, we might call them transgender today, but I'm not sure. They, they used to flip back and forth between France and England, depending which court they were in favour with. And at a certain point, I believe the, the King of France told him that he was so good at being disguised as a woman that from now on he should only be dressed as a woman so he went around or she she went around as a woman then for a while and i think eventually flipped back so but they were an amazing sword swords person so we put them in the game did you work on going medieval as well i did yeah i've been working i had a little break um when jake was doing something different and i had some free time so i worked um doing the writing for going medieval that was really nice. Actually, they're a really nice team um, based in Serbia and I get on with them really well. They're, they're really, really into the same kind of just deep dive into history and all the objects and all the things you could do and what they were called. So they, yeah, I had a lovely time researching. Um, again, another period of history I didn't know a great deal about um, from England um, just shortly after the plague, although we, we wrote an alternate history, but all the things to do with the food, 
uh, how people kept their animals, what they wore, what crops were cooked, um, grown, how you could cook them or what kind of, you know, brew them, what construction materials, you know, you name it. I got to write all the law for that and the little stories of the people. And I had a, had a brilliant time doing that. So, yeah, I was very fortunate to get to work on that. If you had an unlimited budget, though, an unlimited team and time, is there a particular game that you would love to make or, or seen be made? I'm, I'm oh, curious. Gosh. I like to ask game developers that. I don't know. We did kind of we've, we've had a few slightly more esoteric ideas, but I don't know if they would catch on. Like, you know, would somebody like to be um, a, a monk going around the British Isles in a little coracle stopping off and, um, you know, founding monasteries, say, in like the eighth century or something like that? Would that be fun? We also really want to make a game about Scotland. So, you know, watch this space in a couple of years. There might be some kind of history slash Scotland themed game. Well, thank you again for joining me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me.